So no one likes to be misunderstood, maligned, slandered, uh, um, you know, mocked. No one does. We're in a broken and sinful world. It will happen. You will be misunderstood and maligned at times by others. Um, especially as a Christian, by non-Christians, you'll be maligned and misunderstood because they malign and misunderstand Jesus himself. Sadly, even for us as Christians, we will fall into the sin and trap of being the ones who sin and are maligning and misunderstanding others and misrepresenting them. So when your honor is maligned and reproach is put on you from others, what would you do? What will you do? What are you doing? Um, this can be frustrating. It can be burdensome. It can be discouraging and confusing. And King David here, he felt that, and he helps us see our way through, and so we want to listen to him. So here's the main goal of Psalm 4. Respond righteously when your honor is maligned so that you experience God's joy and peace. Okay? Respond righteously when your honor, when your reputation, when your name is maligned so that you experience God's joy and peace. If we look at the psalm, we have eight verses here, and there are three actions to take when you're discouraged by the attacks of others. When others malign you and speak harmfully of you, three actions to take. Actually, before we get into the three actions, just a side note here, or um, a preliminary note. In Before verse 1, it says, for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So this was for the choir director with stringed instruments. This is uh, for singing. This was meant for the, the choir to sing. And so just a note here. Singing is a great way of singing to God and singing songs of truth, even singing to others. This is a song that's not only directed to God, it's directed to others. Singing can be a great ministry to you and to others in times of confusion and despair and discouragement and frustration. And so um, some songs are really helpful. I've, I've been meditating on a song recently. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide, hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way, he will make a way. What a great song. What a great song for Christians like you and like me who have the promises of Christ to hope in the fact that God will make a way for his glory in our lives. So sing, sing with instruments. Now, to the psalm, as you get to verse one here, verses one through eight, in these eight verses, we have three actions to take to respond righteously when we're discouraged by the attacks of others. So I'll give them to you now, and then we'll go through them. Number one, from verse one, request response. Request a response. Number two, recognize righteousness. Verses two through five, recognize righteousness. And then number three, verses six through eight, request radiance. Request radiance. So you have a prayer, and then you have David, he prays to God, then he speaks to people, and then he prays back to God. And so request a response from God, recognize righteousness, and tell people to recognize righteousness, and then request radiance of God, namely his face shining on us. Okay? Let's look at these one at a time. So going to verse 1, request a response. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call. God who vindicates me, you freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So David's response when he's in trial is he prays to God. You know what trials do? When you have trials, trials push on your heart. They push on your heart. They pressure you. And when you have a trial that presses on you, you have to respond. If something presses on me, I've got to push back or push away or move away. But pressure pushes on you. And so when you have a trial 
that pushes on your soul, you either move, check yourself here, you either move toward God or you move away from God. Check your own heart here. When you are in trial, does this move you towards God where you're praying to God and crying out to God for a response like David or do we move away from God? That is important for us to think about as we, as we look at our own souls. Here, David requests an answer to prayer. That's what verse one says, answer me when I call. He asks God to respond. At the very end of this verse, he gives two more prayer requests. Be gracious to me. God, I need your grace. And hear my prayer. Listen to me. Respond to me. So he has three prayer requests. Answer, or, yeah, answer um, be gracious, and hear. These three prayer requests are almost all the same thing, and it's expressing an urgency. When you feel desperate, when you feel discouraged, and you just... You need to cry out to God. There's a sense of urgency here that, urgency here that David feels. Much like our pandemic, our pandemic situation of urgency today in Los Angeles, as of 12 o'clock yesterday, we have 1,804 confirmed cases in LA County of the COVID-19 virus or infection. And I think it's 32 who have died so far. This is a desperate situation. I've been feeling desperate for our, our, um, our members of our church who work in the medical field. Because this is going to be, this is going to get a little bit crazy for a season, perhaps. And so we pray desperately, God, listen to us, hear us. We're scared, we're, we're concerned, we're burdened. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. Do you think that God is out there? I mean, you know, you, you call friends when you're burdened. I was calling friends when I was burdened, even this past week. Who do you cry out to when you're in trouble and it seems like no one can really help? Some, some people, a lot of people... Not only in our church, outside this church, are having trouble sleeping with this current pandemic. And you can call friends, but they're sleeping. So if you're up at the middle, in the middle of the night and there's literally no one to talk to, who do you call? Do you think God is out there and he can actually hear you? The Bible tells us that God is out there. And God is here and he can hear. Now, David knows that God is going to... David prays with confidence. He knows that he can pray to God. Why? Look at verse 1 again. Because he's, he's praying to the God who vindicates him. And he says, God, you freed me from affliction. So here's two reasons for confidence. Number one, God is, God is David's righteousness. God vindicates him. God vindicates him and accepts him, declares him righteous, so to speak, even when he's lost popular opinion. As he's being slandered or maligned by other people, and we'll get to that in verse two, as he's being dishonored, God still vindicates him. And so David finds Find strength in the fact that God, even when people might misunderstand me, like people might misunderstand you, God understands you. And God vindicates you. God is your righteousness. God is David's righteousness, he says. Now, David right here, he might be on a run from Absalom, as we talked about from Psalm 3 several weeks ago on uh, the last Sunday of February. He was on the run from Absalom in Psalm 3. Maybe he's on the run from Absalom again, and Absalom and all the officials who betrayed David and now sided with his son Absalom, maybe those are the ones... And David feels like, they, they feel like I'm an unfit king. Or maybe it's when David was, before he was crowned king, when he was still running from King Saul. One of, one of King Saul's most celebrated soldiers was David, one of his most celebrated leaders. And yet now David was a fugitive on the run, and he was the most wanted man in Israel. Maligned. Misunderstood. But, but David knows God is my righteousness. God is the one who vindicates me. So brothers and sisters, gospelize yourself here. If God is the one who's your righteousness, if God is the one who freed you from affliction, look to God. You know, we have these four Gs. God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself to others. 
God is gracious so that you don't have to prove yourself to others. If God justified you in Christ and declared you righteous in Christ and in his sight, that is your greatest, that is the greatest honor you can have. That's the greatest declaration over who you are, righteous in Christ. And if God vindicates you, then you don't have to prove yourself to yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to others. You don't even have to prove yourself to God because God accepts you. That doesn't mean we don't deal with sin, but that's just one of the realities of gospelizing ourselves. Look again at verse 1. He's confident not only because God vindicates him, but you, you, God, freed me from affliction. God frees or delivered David from affliction. David looks back at his past. He can look at other situations in his life from the past and think, man, God has, God has gotten me through. If God got me through in the past, God can get me again. He can get me through again in the future. So for us, what does that mean for us? Look to the past as well. For Christians, where should we look to in the past? If you're going to look in the past, look to the past. Look to the cross where Christ died for you and rose for you. Look to Pentecost where God's Holy Spirit descended from heaven to earth to now indwell his new covenant people. God, did, did God send his spirit? Did Christ die for sinners? Did Christ rise from the dead? If God freed you from affliction back then, will he not free you now? Will he not respond to you now? And don't even look, only even look back at those redemptive historical events. Look at your personal redemptive historical events. Think about your conversion. I was converted, converted in 1989. God saved me in 1989 as a Roman Catholic who did not understand the gospel through Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If God did that for me, won't he help me now? Think about your baptism. I don't know when you were baptized. I was baptized in 1992 on, on Easter. Uh, and so 1992, I was baptized. You can look back at your baptism and say, wow, God, you, you declared me righteous in Christ. And then the church declared their affirmation of my Christianity. Praise God for God's um, freeing you even back then. Or think about your membership. When you became a member at Bethany Baptist Church, I became a member in November, uh, October 2014. And the church affirmed me then. When did the church affirm your your salvation. What a, what a blessing that God would give you that grace. Or the last time you took the Lord's table. The last time all of us took the Lord's table, Bethany Baptist Church, which was March 8th, for some of us at least. March 8th of the evening service. We took communion together. We took communion together. And that was a grace from God. You could look back at the past graces of God in your life and say, God, hear me when I pray to you. And I know you'll hear me because you, you've done great things for me in the past. Children, children, my children, listen up. Stop talking and messing around. Children, listen up. Expect God to respond to you when you pray, okay? Did you know that God hears you when you pray? Yeah, he does. He hears you, and that's why we tell you to pray. And, and adults, listen now. You need to have childlike faith just like the children. Children trust God in God easily. They trust others easily. They're not skeptical or they're not, they haven't faced so much disappointment in their lives that they're cynical of others and of God. Don't be cynical of God. Trust God to respond to you despite your past disappointments and discouragements because God is gracious. If you're discouraged and weak even right now, call out to God and ask him to answer you. God gave you this text so that you would call out to him in your discouragement and in your weakness. Praise God that he vindicates us. Praise God that he has a history of freeing us. And praise God that he gives us confidence that he'll come through again and again as we call out to him. So, respond righteously when your honor is maligned so that you experience God's joy and peace. And we said there's three actions to take when you're discouraged by the attacks of others. Number one, request a response. Secondly, recognize righteousness, verses two through five. 
recognize righteousness. Now, some say David aims, so these are four verses, verses two through five. Some say David aims these next four verses all at his opponents. Others say uh, verse two is for the opponents and then verses three through five is for his followers who are with him on the run. Whether David's on the run from King Saul or he's on the run from Absalom, his son, who took over Jerusalem. Either way, David's on the run, perhaps. And so some people think verse two is his rebuke to his opponents and then verses three through five is kind of refocusing his people so what is it what's the breakdown here or is it verses two and three is for the opponents and, and four and five is for his people uh, i don't know the exact breakdown here but let me say this verse two is clearly to his opponents and verses three through five can be addressed to his opponents and to his his followers so i'm going to take it in the most broadest application verse two is for david's opponents and verses three through five at least is is, is uh, applies to both groups. And as you look at these four verses, we can say, when we're saying recognize righteousness, I want you to recognize four things, okay? I want you to recognize four things if you're gonna recognize righteousness. And it's one per verse, okay? So in verse two, what should you recognize? Look at verse two. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? So whose honor is being insulted here? That's right. David's honor is being insulted. And if David's honor is being insulted, we need to recognize the honor of the, the son. Well, the king. David is the king, right? So recognize the king's honor. If you're going to recognize righteousness, you need to recognize God's king's honor. You need to recognize the reputation, the glory, the honor of the king. So the first thing to recognize from verse 2 is recognize the king's honor. Now, notice who he's talking to here. In verse 2, he's asking a question, how long will you dishonor my honor? But who's he talking to in verse 2? The what? His opponents. But what's, what, are, what are the opponents called in verse 2? That's right. How long, exalted ones, will, will uh, my, na my name, my honor, my reputation be insulted? Now, who are the exalted ones who are attacking David here? The exalted ones, and the CSB is the only one that translates it exalted ones. The other translations just say people or, or humans, men. But exalted ones might be the right translation here. And it's probably referring to the powerful, the rich, the nobles, or the higher ups in society. The powerful people in society, they're using their power to oppress and to, to, to tear down David's honor. If David is the king and Absalom his son took, all, took a lot of the nobles and the men of Israel. All of these powerful people are maligning David. Or if it's King Saul, maybe David's not crowned the king yet. He's on the run, but he's already anointed by, by Samuel as the king. But he's on the run. And so Saul and all of the higher-ups, the exalted ones in Israel, are maligning and dishonoring David. Either way, what David has here is he has exalted ones attacking and slandering him. And so David's honor or his reputation according to ISV or his glory, according to the NIV, was insulted and maligned. And so now David here is fighting for his personal honor. So I want you guys to look up here, my kids here, at least those who are here, I wanna ask you guys a question. David here is fighting for his personal honor. Here's my question to you. Is it sinful to fight for your personal honor? Is, or is David being selfish here and sinful for fighting for his own honor? What do you think? No, you guys think, no. Okay, let me ask you another question. If David's so passionate to fight for his honor, should we be so passionate to fight for our honor? 
Should we fight for our own honor when we're maligned and insulted and blamed? Should we? Like David, should we fight for our honor the way David's fighting for his honor? Yes or no? No, not killing people. <laughs> no? So David should fight for his honor and we shouldn't? No, we shouldn't. Some of you say we should. Some of you say we shouldn't. Now, here's why we're different than David. Because I think, in general, I think there's a reason why it's right for David to fight for his honor and it's not right for us to fight for our honor. I think. Here's why. Who is David here? What, he was, what was he anointed as? The king of Israel. Now, whether he's running from Saul and he's not the actual king yet, but he's already anointed with the spirit of God by Samuel, or whether he's actually already the king running from Absalom, David is the anointed king of Israel, whether currently recognized or not. He was faithful to Israel as a faithful soldier, as a faithful king. So to malign David is to malign God's anointed one. What's another word for anointed one? Messiah. Messiah. David is a Messiah. He's the Messiah at this point. Lowercase m. So David is saying, if you, if you malign me, you're, malign, you're maligning the anointed one. That God has anointed as his king of his people, his holy nation, Israel. So David fighting for his own honor is not just any Israelite or any Christian fighting for their own honor. This is the Messiah who, does he deserve to be honored as God's king? Yes or no? Yes. But he's not. And so David is saying, if you're going to recognize righteousness, you need to recognize the king's honor. All right? And that's what Psalm 2 is. I mean, don't go back now, but if you, if you look at Psalm 2, what is Psalm 2 all about? It's all about the Messiah, God's anointed one, being mocked. It's all about God's anointed one, the Messiah, being mocked and rejected. Okay? And the people were angry at him. And so that, that's also carrying out here in Psalm 4. Now look at, so um, David fights for his honor, just like, uh, just like Christ also, does Jesus Christ deserve to be honored? Should, should Christ's honor be fought for? Yes. yes, right? I mean, not our honor so much, but Christ's honor should be... Just like it's right for David to insist on his messianic honor being recognized. That should be the same way that Christ's messianic honor should be recognized. And it will be recognized in the end. It should be recognized now. It will be recognized in the end. Christ will be recognized Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is what? Is Lord. But for now, Christ is still dishonored on this earth, is he not? Among those outside of the church, Christ is dishonored. He's not recognized as King, Lord, God, Treasure, Savior. In the church, even us, we sin. And so we don't even honor Christ consistently. He's still dishonored inside the visible church today as well. But one day, Christ's honor will no longer be insulted. Lord hates that day. Now, should we, I already answered this question, should we fight for our honor like David? Yes or no? Yeah. No. Not generally. Maybe, I mean, there could be times, but not generally. We should not fight for our honor. I would say generally, don't fight for your honor, but uh, don't, um, I would say no, don't fight for your honor, but fight to honor Christ and let your honor in the eyes of your persecutors and your opponents, let your honor be the same way they honor Jesus. So if they honor Jesus, then they should, if you're walking with Christ, they should honor you. If you're dishonoring Jesus, or if they're dishonoring Jesus, then they should dishonor you as well. So don't fight for your honor. Fight for fighting sin in your own life. Fight to honor Christ in your own life so that your life and name is lined up with Christ. Because we could get off from Christ when we sin. When I sin, I could get off from Christ. But if my life is lined up with Christ, or your life is lined up with Christ, and then they're dishonoring you for walking with Christ, 
then you identify with Christ. And Jesus said, if the world hated me, they will also what? Hate you. And if I'm rejecting Christ as a Christian, um, attacking you, then, then I'm, I'm rejecting Jesus in that, in that sin. So those who oppose David, look at what they love in verse 2. Go back to verse 2. So they dishonor David, they insult David's honor, but look on. How long will you love what is what? Worthless, Worthless and pursue a lie. They're, they're, they're believing lies about David, that David isn't the rightful king. Absalom, his son, should now be the king. Or David isn't the king. King Saul should be the king, if you go back to that story. And so whichever story this is, and we don't know the exact story, so this could apply to a lot of different things, even in our own lives. The point here is those who oppose David, they loved what is worthless and they pursued a lie because they did not recognize David's honor. They did not recognize his glory. They didn't recognize his reputation correctly as the messianic king of God's kingdom, old covenant Israel. They pursued a lie. They wanted what is worthless. Now here I want you to notice what is worthless. What is worthless? Who are they against right now? Who are, who are David's opponents against? Who are they opposing? Absolutely. David. They're, they're opposing David. So instead they're pursuing what is worthless. So what is worthless? I'm going to give you a definition of what is worthless. What is worthless is whatever one pursues as valuable or worthy in a way that rejects or reduces the honor of God's Messiah. So if I pursue my family, if I pursue my family who's right here in front of me, if I pursue our church's health, or if I pursue health in my own life, or if I pursue financial prosperity, or if I pursue uh, killing the COVID-19 crisis so that, so that we can have health in our society again, a good pursuit. But if we pursue those things disconnected from the Messiah or dishonoring the Messiah, then in the end, we're pursuing not God and his Messiah, we're pursuing an idol. And guess what? Idols are... Worthless. Idols are worthless. And so what is worthless? They're pursuing their life pursuits while dishonoring God's Messiah, David. And so, in other words, being properly related to God's Messiah reveals what is truly worthy versus what is truly worthless. What is truly valuable versus what has no value at all. What is a treasure versus what is trash. It's all about Jesus. Christ is above all and in all and through all, right? It's all about the supremacy of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when people are rightly connected to Christ, it has eternal value because Christ is eternally and infinitely valuable. And by virtue of connecting to Christ, it also has that value properly understood and related to Christ. But when Christ is marginalized, when Christ is belittled, when Christ is reduced, when Christ is ignored or maligned or rejected, then whatever you pursue, guess what? It's what? It's worthless. It's a lie because Christ is the truth and Christ is the treasure. So without connecting to, with Christ the truth, it's a lie. And being disconnected or improperly related to Christ the treasure, it is worthless. And that's what the opponents do. When you don't recognize the king's honor, you pursue what is worthless and you pursue a lie. There's a second thing to recognize here in righteousness. Recognize God's, well, look at verse 3. Know that the Lord Yahweh has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. So when it says um, the Lord set apart the faithful, do you think that means the faithful people or the faithful one? Look at verse 3 again. He's probably talking to his people as well as to the opponents. Know that the Lord has set the faithful apart for himself. 
Is that just him? Or the one? Or is that the many? How many of you think it's just one? The faithful one? Raise your hand. At home, raise your hand as well. I can't see you, but raise your hand. So those around you. Okay, how many of you think it's the faithful, the faithful, the, the, the community? How many say it's the faithful community? Okay. I think it's both. Okay, but I think it's primarily the one and then it applies to the community. Why? Look at verse three again. Know that Yahweh has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when, when what? When I call to him. So who's David still talking about? Who? Himself. So, uh, so the, the, the Lord, King David is the faithful one. He's the faithful Messiah here. He's the faithful one set apart from God, set apart by God. And David commands his hearers, hey, hearers, opponents, hey, friends who are following me, you guys need to know something. The Lord sets apart his faithful one. He has set me apart as his faithful one. He will hear me when I call. So recognize God's faithful one. Me, David, is what David is saying. And guess what? If you recognize King David as the faithful one, the true Messiah, or, and who David points to, the greater Messiah, the true final Messiah, Jesus Christ, if you recognize Jesus as the faithful one, and you're faithful to the faithful one, are you faithful too? Yes. By you being faithful to the faithful one, you're faithful, and the Lord sets you apart. So I think if you're going to recognize righteousness, you need to recognize that God sets apart the faithful for himself, verse 3, prim referring primarily to God's Messiah. But anyone connected correctly to that Messiah, united to that Messiah, I would say in a new covenant sense, then they too are the faithful ones. And so whether you're maligned or not, whether you're misunderstood, whether you're misunderstood by people or whether Christ is misunderstood by people, this is our call to the world who rejects Christ. This is our call to fellow Christians. You, everyone needs to know this. The Lord sets apart the faithful one to himself. And all those who are connected to that faithful one are also set apart by the Lord. So recognize God's faithful. So, you're gonna, so we're going to recognize God's, uh, the king's honor. We're going to recognize God's faithful. And thirdly, look at verse 4. Recognize righteous anger. Recognize righteous anger. And if you're going to recognize righteous anger, you're also going to have to recognize sinful anger. So look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. So here, um, recognize righteous anger and sinful anger. Now perhaps David's men were hotheads, according to one commentator, they were hotheads. Like the sons of Zariah, actually, providentially, in my devotions today, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 16, I was reading, and this is when David was on the run from Absalom. And I'll just tell you the story. In 2 Samuel um, 16, yeah, in 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 and following, David was on the run from Absalom. And there was a guy from Saul's house who came up to David, and you know what he called David? Here's what he said to David. Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man! The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed him the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble, because you're a man of bloodshed, David! That's 2 Samuel 16, verses um, 7 and following. So here, David is maligned. You're a man of bloodshed. You're wicked, David. You're doing this because you took Saul's house. Is that true? Is that right? That David was wicked for taking over Saul's house? No. Now, David did sin, and this, his judgment with Absalom was part of that. I mean, God's discipline. But this was a false accusation. This was a lie. And you know what the sons of Zariah, David's top soldiers did? They looked at him, and what did they say? 
Lord, or talking to, to King David, they're talking to their king and they're saying, can I cut his head off? So here's this guy kicking up rocks, throwing rocks at David and people and shouting at them. And Zariah, Zariah's uh, sons, you know, Joab and uh, Abishai, they look at King David and say, hey, can I cut his head off? And David says, what am I going to do with you, sons of Zariah? You guys are too, you're too harsh. You're, maybe, maybe David's saying, maybe you're angry and you're sinfully angry. And he's saying, maybe this guy is cursing me because God wants him to do that. And if God wants to vindicate me, he'll vindicate me. So, so maybe David is getting that idea of be angry and do not sin. Okay, if we're getting, if we're getting maligned, don't sin back. Or, and I want you guys to turn to your Bible here because I just think it's a, it, it illustrates the point and it is a fun story. So grab your Bibles and keep your finger in Psalm 4, but go to Luke chapter 9. Go to Luke chapter 9 in your Bible. Luke 9 in your Bible. Kids, when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 49 with me. Luke 9, 49 to 55. This is funny. Okay. Luke 9, 49. It says this. John responded to Jesus. Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way he entered a village, the vill a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But, verse 53, they did not welcome Jesus because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So did they welcome Jesus or did they reject Jesus? Did they, did they receive Jesus, uh, the Messiah or reject the Messiah? Did they um, honor him or dishonor him? That's right. So what, um, what, what's the response in verse 54 from the disciples? When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? And Jesus says, he turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. They reject Jesus. They dishonor the Messiah. And so they turn and say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them all? Wow. That's being angry and sinning, right? And so Jesus rebukes them. Hey, be angry and do not sin. Yeah, the Messiah might be dishonored. Yes, my honor might be insulted. And yes, you might be righteously angry. But that righteous anger can quickly distort into sinful anger. Where you want revenge. You're not trusting God's timing. Be angry and do not sin. Do you know what, uh, what James and John were called? The sons of what? Thunder. The sons of thunder. Just like the sons of Zariah. Maybe too harsh. And so King David, going back to Psalm 4 now. David is saying maybe to his men. And maybe even to his opponents who are angry at him. Hey everyone. Be angry. But don't be sinfully angry. Be righteously angry. What is righteous anger? What is righteous anger? Righteous anger is anger that is not sinful. It's, it's not sinful. Uh, Anger that is not sinful is a short anger. It's not prolonged. In Ephesians 4, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So it's not prolonged anger that turns into bitterness and resentment. It's controlled anger. It's not out of control. It's channeled anger. It's channeled in a direction in prayer to God and for God's glory and God's justice and man's good in the created order. Righteous anger is God-centered. It's about the glory of God, and it's Messiah-oriented. It's tied to the Messiah and the Messiah's honor and the Messiah's leadership and direction. 
David is the Messiah here, directing his men to be angry and not sin. Jesus was directing his men not to call down fire from heaven. It's Messiah-oriented anger. It is anger for God's glory. When you're angry, when you were angry this week, were you sinfully angry or righteously angry? It's righteous if it's short and controlled and channeled and God-centered and Messiah-oriented and justice-pursuing. What is sinful anger? Sinful anger is an anger for another glory or value beside God. Or it's an anger for something more than, uh, because you're angry more about uh, something else than, than I'm angry about God. You're more passionate for something else more than you're passionate for God. Or sinful anger is, it's an anger for God's glory in a way that turns to be something else by being too long or out of control or misdirected or God marginalizing. So maybe James and John were righteously angry that Christ was dishonored by the Samaritans in Luke 9. But then that can quickly turn into sinful anger when it gets out of control or misdirected. So the command here, be angry and do not what? And do not sin. Recognize righteous anger. And David tells us how to do it in verse 4. What does he say? Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. So David here is calling for self-examination. Lay down. So if you're angry, you know what? Just, if you're angry, lay down. Get on your bed. Reflect in your heart and be what? Be what? Be still. Be still. David calls for self-examination and self-reflection and to be still. Be still when you feel angry initially. What does James 1.19 say? Everyone should be slow to, uh, quick to what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to listen. So get on your bed, be still, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Reflection, stillness, and self-examination helps you know if you are sinfully angry or righteously angry. It helps you know whether you are going to take a righteous anger in a sinful direction or a righteous direction. So be still. Get on your bed. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. Examine yourself. Reflect in your heart, as David says here. So this is talking about self-examination, but there are other ways to examine your anger. Get counsel from other people um, where, where um, others can hear you out. So Proverbs 12, 15 says, A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. So get counsel. Get other, other Christians to gospelize you and hear you out. Get other members to hear you out and, and get their input. Ask for their input before you go forth with your anger. So um, another thing is if you're going to get righteous anger, you need to go back to the Bible, right? All scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting. So if you need to correct your anger or rebuke sinful anger, use the Bible to define sin and sinful anger. If you're angry over sin, let the Bible define sin and say, am I angry over sin for God's glory and in God's way? Or am I angry about non-sin? If I'm angry about non-sin that the Bible doesn't call sin, then, you would be, then we would be sinfully angry. So if we're sinfully angry, what should we do? What should you do when you sin? Be still. Well, no, when you, that's when you're angry. When you, when you sin, what should you do? Repent. If, anyone are, um, if, you, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess your sin to God. Repent. Go to the cross. And if you say, I'm examining my heart. I don't know if I'm sinning. I don't think I'm sinning. 
Well, rest in your integrity, but always be open to rebuke from God and from others. Okay, so recognize righteous anger. And the last thing to recognize from verse 5 is recognize the provision for sin and for fellowship. Recognize the provision for sin and fellowship. Look at verse 5. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Offer righteous sacrifices. Offer sacrifices righteously. Now these are the sacrifices of the law covenant given through Moses, right? The Israeli covenant, the old Israeli covenant. And the right sacrifices are according to the right standards with the right heart. So you have to take an animal, one year male with no blemishes. Make sure you sacrifice the right kind of sacrifice with the right kind of heart according to the right standards of God's instruction. So David is saying, hey, remember you're a sinner. Remember you need fellowship with God. And so make sure that you are sacrifice-centered, altar-centered. In the New Testament, what's the final sacrifice? Jesus on the what? On the cross. So we'd say cross-centered. For them back then, they had to look back to the priest, to the tabernacle sacrifices. And then beyond that, they had to look to Yahweh, the God who made a covenant that he would be with his people. And they would, he would be their God and they would be his people. So when they were, so for David and his people, they're saying, I need to go to the tabernacle. I need to go to the priest. I need to make sacrifices, atonement for my sin, for fellowships and thanksgiving offerings to God so I could commune with God through sacrifices. And for us as Christians, we have the cross of Christ. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. That's old covenant sacrifices. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So what is our sacrifice? The cross of Christ. And it's one time. Christ died, he rose from the dead, and it is finished. There is no more sacrifice. So we don't need to keep offering our sacrifices, we can just keep looking back to Christ and communing with God through Christ's already finished sacrifice. So if you're going to recognize righteousness, recognize the provision for sin, recognize the cross and keep going back to the cross again and again and again when you are being attacked. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're listening here in this auditorium or there here online, if you're listening on the screen, I want you to hear this. If you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. Block everything else out and, and listen to this. God made you. God is your creator. He owns you. He owns us all. He owns everything. Yet we have rebelled against God as if we own ourselves, as if we own everything around us. And we want to use things for our own selfishness rather than for our own good in God with others. We've rebelled against God and we've sinned. And the penalty for sin is death. The sentence for sin is condemnation in hell forever under God's righteous wrath and judgment. But here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, sinless life obeying God for us. He died on the cross for our sins as the once for all final sacrifice for all sins forever, for all those who would, who would believe, so that, and then he rose from the dead, that showing that God accepted his sacrifice, so that if you repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus, You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll have God. God will give you himself and forgiveness and fellowship with God so that God will vindicate you and commune with you and sustain you in your hard life until the very end. 
until he wipes away every tear from your eye and you live with him forever on the new earth to come. So if you're not a Christian, I want to plead with you, even this morning, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Call on Christ to save you right now, and Jesus will save you. And if you have any questions about that, please ask me. You could leave a message here on this Facebook thread. You could message me, email me, look at our church website. But we would love to help you understand this and help you follow Jesus if you have just trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Christians or church family, Bethany Baptist Church, let our church be a Christ-centered, a Messiah-centered, sin-killing, anger-exercising, and cross-focused church. Let's exercise righteous anger and, ex and fight sinful anger. Let's take the Lord's Supper every week thoughtfully so we can keep going back to the cross again and again and again. And I say that sadly because I'm preaching to you guys who are watching live online because we can't take the Lord's Supper together. We can't. I can't wait for us to do it again. It's gonna be free. It's gonna be. It's gonna be so sweet to take communion again once we get back together. But until then, we have to wait. But we will continue every week when we gather to take the Lord's Supper to remember Christ, His offering, His death. If you're stumbling or you're stubbornly stuck in your sin, there is forgiveness for our sins and for our sinful anger. There is a loving Messiah who wants to soften our hearts and who understands our pain. Oftentimes our anger is from right pain, of rightly being caused pain, or, wrong, or for, for rightly feeling pain, for, for pain that's wrongly caused. But God understands our pain. So respond righteously when your honor is maligned, so that you experience God's joy and peace. How? By requesting a response from God. Secondly, by recognizing righteousness. And thirdly, by requesting radiance. By requesting radiance. Verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6 with me. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? So they're asking for goodness. People are looking for goodness. You know, another translation says, who can show us better days? Here I'm preaching to you guys through a camera. And what are we longing for? Better days. I wish I could just take this camera and just turn around real quick to show the empty auditorium. Just to show you that we're longing for better days. That we're all back in this room on the Lord's Day to worship God together. And see each other face to face and greet each other with a holy kiss or a warm hug or a holy handshake. We long for that day. And, and that's what many are asking. Who can show us anything good? Who can bring us to better days? When will we see better days? Many are asking for goodness. Many are asking for better days. Maybe there was a famine. Maybe there was pestilence or national security pain in that season for David. And David was being maligned. Much like... And I'm not defending our president for or against at this point. It's just, you know, there's a lot of commentary on, on our leaders, whether they're leading well or not, because there's, a, there's, there's down days, there's dark days. And so there will be criticism. And so people are looking for better days. Where is true and lasting goodness going to come from? Where will the better days come from? From who? From God. And so David just says, hey, everyone's looking for better days, but where are you going to find it? Look at verse 6 again. Here's David's prayer request. Here's the third point. Let your what? What is he praying for? Let your what? Or let the what? Let the light of your face shine on us. That's what he's praying for, the radiance of God. God is ineffably, infinitely holy and beautiful and majestic. And the, the effulgence, the shining forth of God's Holy inner excellence is his glory. It's his radiance. 
Just like you never see the sun, you could stare at the sun for a few seconds, but not too long, it'll burn your eyes. You can stare at the sun for a few seconds, but are you actually looking at the sun, the surface of the sun? You're not looking at the surface of the sun. What are you looking at? The radiance, the shining out of the light of the sun. Now that is an extension of the sun. It is the sun that you're looking at, but you're looking at the radiance of the sun. And what is, what is David praying for here? God, I'm in trouble. God, I'm discouraged. God, I'm being attacked. Let your light, let the light of your face shine on me. And not just me, shine on who? Shine on us. Shine on your people, the Messiah's people. Shine on my people, David's praying. Pray that God's face, the, the light of his face would shine on us. Now, we pray a lot in our church gatherings when we do gather. We pray for God's people. We pray together in our gatherings. We pray a long prayer petition every morning. I emailed it to the church members so you guys can see what the prayer petition would have been this morning. You can pray that yourself today and this week. In our Sunday nights, we gather together to pray for each other. But this is the ultimate prayer. And I found myself praying for some of you this prayer this week. This is the ultimate prayer. God, let the light of your face shine on me on us this is the ultimate prayer like like what moses prayed do you remember what moses prayed when he saw god show me your what show me your glory yeah show me your glory the light of your glory show me your glory and what did god say i will make my goodness pass in front of you we want to see god's glory and god will show us his what his goodness who can show us anything good god can from the light of his face so pray, God, show us your glory. Show Bethany Baptist Church your glory. Let your light, the, the light of your face shine on us. This is the ironic blessing, but the blessing is not spoken here to the people. It's spoken to God. It's prayed to God. But what is the ironic blessing? Number 6, 24 through 26. Kids, you guys should know this, right? Because I say this to you. The Lord bless you and protect you or keep you. The Lord make his face, what? Shine on you. And be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. This is God himself. The Lord blessing you, protecting you, making his face shining on you, being gracious to you, looking on you with favor, with love, because he accepts you. And he gives you what? His peace. This is the ultimate blessing. This is the ultimate prayer that we would have God himself. If God shines his, his face on us, the light of his face, then we get God himself. So pray that for yourself. Pray that for your people. Pray that for our people. Now, why would God answer our prayers? Why would God answer our prayers? Why would God give his faithful ones the radiance if we ask him? Look at verses 7 and 8. Why? Here's reasons for confidence in prayer. Verse 7. The first reason is that God gave more joy for his people than when the opposition prospers. Look at verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. When they are a, a, when they're abounding with money, with health, with power, with friendships, with popularity, with, with health, with good looks, with whatever the world abounds with, with, whatever the world pursues, new wine and harvest and health, when they're flourishing with all of their earthly treasures, what does David say? You've given me what? Less joy than they have? You've given me no joy? What does he say? You've given me what? More joy. Better joy, more joy than they have. It is the most because it's God himself. You've given me more joy. What does the world have apart from Christ, really? Power, riches, pleasures, control, health, medical technology, 
What does it profit a man, Jesus said, to gain the whole world and lose his, his life, to lose his soul? God is, the, God is the real treasure. God gives us more joy than all the joys of this world. You know the difference of the world's joys and God as your joy is the difference of looking at a vacation package on a website or in a brochure versus actually being on vacation with the people you love and want to spend time with. Our family was looking forward to a cruise, right? You guys remember that? We want a cruise right before, by God's grace, right before the COVID-19 virus broke out here in the U.S. And we're all safe, but uh, we, I showed the kids videos of the cruise. Remember that, guys? What, was it better to watch the videos on YouTube or was it better to be on the cruise? It's way better to be on the cruise, right? And so the world has all their treasures. Like, oh, look, at we have this and that. It's like they have all these YouTube videos of cruises. And David says, you can have all of that. But if God gives me himself, I have more joy. I got the real thing. All the earthly treasures only point to our true treasure, God himself. So that's the first reason we know God will answer our prayer. Because God gave us more joy than the opposition. And secondly, God generously gives us peace and security. Look at verse 8, the last verse. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Yahweh, make me live in safety. God generously gives peace. And look, it says, you, let, you make me live in what? The very last word, you make me live in? Safety. God gives us peace and security. That's why we know God will hear us and make his face shine on us. Because he, he's generous. Are you anxious about the COVID-19 crisis? There was, one, there was a moment this week where I was just struck and overcome for a moment with fear and anxiety about the COVID-19 crisis. Not for, for me this week, that wasn't the main, that, that, that didn't um, dominate my life. But there was a moment I was talking to a medical professional and I was overcome by fear just for a moment there. Are you overcome with anxiety where peace and security are lacking in your life? What are you scared of? What am I scared of? Death? Death of a loved one? Sickness? Financial catastrophe? A failed economy, overrun hospitals, isolation from loved ones, the carelessness of other neighbors who might be spreading the virus unaware. What are, you, what are you scared of? What are you anxious about? You know, sleeping in peace is hard these days. Many, have, many people have a hard time sleeping. Peaceful sleep and rest only comes from God who lets us rest in security and safety because God protects us. The Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps so that his people can sleep peacefully. Christian, God shines his face on you. And so we sing songs like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and may his face shine on us. Now, I want to think about this question right before we close. Why does God answer prayers for his radiance and his light, the light of his face, to shine on us? Why would God let us, you and I, Christian, why would he let us lie down and sleep in peace? Why would he let us live in safety if we've been prayerless? We don't go to God with our trials. We run away from God in complaints, 
If we've dishonored God's Messiah and disconnected our joys from Jesus, if our anger has been sinful anger and not righteous anger, if we've spurned the sacrifice of God from time to time in our lives and belittled the cross, why would God let us have His light of His face shining on us? Why would God let us sleep in peace? Why do we get a night of a peaceful sleep in the dark night of our soul? Why? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, on that Thursday night, Jesus prayed and prayed and prayed while his disciples fell asleep. They had peaceful sleep. They were too tired. Jesus couldn't sleep. He was praying to God and calling out to God for an answer. He called out, God, let this cup be passed from me. Let there be another way for this plan to be accomplished. He asked God for the cup, the cup of suffering, the cross, to be passed from him. And Jesus, that Thursday night, Jesus wouldn't sleep. He didn't sleep. He was betrayed. He wouldn't lie down. He would not live in safety. He was arrested. He was mocked. He was dishonored. He was tried and, and he was scorned. He was beaten. He was tried again and then tried again. And then he was sentenced to die on a Roman cross. He didn't have a, sleep, a sleepful night. He didn't have a restful night. He didn't sleep in peace and in safety. Then when he was hanging on that cross, the light of God's face would not shine on him. Instead, the darkness of God's judgment would envelop him and fall on him. And for three hours on that cross, from about noon to 3 p.m., the darkness of God's judgment would be poured out on him. As God abandoned him on the cross and poured out his wrath and anger and judgment, his righteous judgment on his Davidic king, his son, the, the messianic son, the eternal son, God would punish Christ on the cross for our sins so that we could live in the light of His face shining on us so that we can live in safety and sleep with His peace tonight and forever. We have peace. We have the light of God's face. Because Christ did not, even though he was the only one who deserved the light of God's face. He was the only one who deserved a restful night of sleep in peace. He's the only one who deserves to live in safety. Yet he was destroyed, in a sense, judged on that cross for our sins. Praise God he rose from the dead. Amen. And praise God he saved us, that we now can have this joy. So, to close, now we can respond righteously when our honor is maligned so that we experience God's joy and God's peace. What are the three actions to take when we're discouraged by the attacks of others? What are they? Request, a response, recognize, righteousness, righteousness and then request, radiance. radiance. Here's my final call to you, my final call to action. When you're attacked and when you're discouraged and when you're overwhelmed, here it is. Be still. Be still and call out to God as you examine your heart in the midst of your trials. When you're in your trials, be still and call out to God as you examine your heart. If you don't do this, you might be dominated by sinful anger and other sins. And you will turn from Jesus the Messiah and dishonor him, maybe without even knowing it. But if you are still... And if you call out to God, 
as you examine your heart, you will have your sins exposed and you'll be convicted. You'll be able to live in integrity. And the peace and honor of Jesus will rest on you. It'll rest on you. So, I want you, as we close, to pray with David the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Pray this prayer. And let's pray this together. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray. I'll give you, even there where you're sitting at home, a moment of silence. Pray on your own for a minute, and then I will close our time with prayer. Father, help us to be still and know that you are God. Answer us when we call. Open our eyes to recognize righteousness in Christ as the faithful one, as the king. Righteousness in anger and righteousness in the cross of Christ. Let the light of your face shine on us that we might taste and see that you are good and experience better days, good days, even today and for the rest of our lives. Meet us, Lord, as we are still and call out to you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.